You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. World Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, speaking to you from my office at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not for or on behalf of the university. Our guest today is Harold Holzer, Senior Vice President for External Affairs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. It's an impressive title, but the reason he joins us today is what he has accomplished in his spare time, where he is one of the most prolific and important scholars working today on the subject of Abraham Lincoln. His most recent book, Lincoln at Cooper Union, The Speech That Made Abraham Lincoln President, won the 2005 Lincoln Prize. We'll be back in a moment with Harold Holzer on Civil War Talk Radio. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. With today, Harold Holzer from New York City. Harold, are you there? I'm here, Jerry. Good to talk to you. It is good to talk to you. It is especially good to talk to you today because... Uh, for those who are listening live, we're coming back at the end of our summer hiatus. And there have been, what shall I say, the, the uh, occasional technological glitch that happens that has uh, delayed the start of our interview by a few moments. It reminds me of uh, what Clausewitz once pointed out, that in war everything is very simple, but the simplest thing is difficult. And so it is here that it's quite simple to set these things up, but even the simple things can be difficult. However, here we are finally... Well, the good news is that while you in the academic community are actually beginning your season, we in New York have another week to go, and things are very laid back. So even I am laid back right now. And the fact that we're delayed, it's just fine. Well, Harold, I'm delighted to hear that because when I think of the the quintessential New Yorker, 
Um, laid back is not what I think of. Actually, I know. You, that's, you, <laughs> you're what I think of. I know. That's why. So that's why I added that little explanatory note. Well, that is good news then. I'm, I'm glad uh, things are, are calm at your end, and uh, the, the delay is not not of any significance. Um, let me ask you from the start: What got you interested in the story of Abraham Lincoln? Oh, you mean originally? Way back. Way way back. I know, way, way back. Well, when I was in fifth grade in New York City, we had an extraordinary teacher. Um, I still remember her vividly, even though it's, you know, 40-something years ago. Her name was Henrietta Janke. I even decided to write my H's the way she signed her name on the blackboard. So I was very impressed with her. And one day she asked us to pick names from uh, her hat that she had prepared in advance and folded into slips of paper. Uh, the name that we extracted would then be our assignment to write a you know two-page composition, not based on what we knew at the time, but based on what we might look up in the library. We were uh, attached to a junior high school, the equivalent of today's middle school, so we had uh, a, a library that encompassed you know ninth grade and beyond. And I picked... I picked Abraham Lincoln from the hat. Um, my friend behind me picked Genghis Khan. So there but for one place in line, I might have wound up as a rock and roll promoter, which is what he wound up as, so you never know. Or you could be right now on Genghis Khan talk radio as the foremost Khan expert. Well, he passed away, so I probably I would have become a rock promoter and then gone into the great beyond with other rock promoters. So I, I lucked out in more ways than one. Absolutely. And I um, went to the library and looked at the open stacks and put, picked out a book called the, that I'm sure you know very well called The Lincoln Nobody Knows by Richard Nelson Current, right. yeah. who is still with us in his 90s, a great man, a great scholar, and a wonderful, engaging writer. And the book spoke to me at my own, you know, junior, very junior level. And that's how it happened. I wrote my report, but I never stopped reading from that about Lincoln from that minute forward. And I think um, it's just, you know, it's one of those lightning strike things that you never understand, but I'm just awfully glad it happened. Well, I'd say we are all certainly glad it happened because it's produced a lot of very interesting scholarship. Uh, how do you do that? Uh, in the introduction, I pointed out your, your day job. Is my day the job, The Metropolitan yeah. Museum. Uh, that's not a uh, that's not an easy gig, I'm sure. And on top of that, how do you do all the writing? Well, I do I I, I do all my writing uh, on the weekends, frankly. And um, I you know I manage to put in 12 and 13 hour days on the weekends when we don't have anything else planned. And as we spend our vacations mostly doing um, research trips, I do have a very demanding job in New York. And I'm as you know, I'm also the co-chairman of the Federal Lincoln Bicentennial Commission, which takes up some time. And, uh, you know, it's difficult, but um, I guess I love doing it, and um, it sort of comes naturally, and I'm able to segment my life, and um, it, it's worked out. I'm exhausted, but it's worked out. Well, that's, well I'm, I'm certainly glad it's worked out, not, not that you're exhausted. Um, <laughs> the, the Bicentennial you mentioned, the Lincoln born in 1809, where... Uh, coming up on the 200th anniversary. What is the Bicentennial Commission, and what do you do there? Well, in 2000, Congress um, created a Lincoln Bicentennial Commission. Um, it's interesting that um, it was in the days 
there's just a little modern political twist to it. It was in the days when um, um, the president was a, uh, was a Democratic president, Bill Clinton, and the Congress was already Republican. And uh, the Clinton people sent in uh, a bill almost exactly like the bill that had created the Lincoln Sesquicentennial Commission back in 1959 uh, for a presidential commission. Well, since Congress and President Clinton were battling on every front imaginable at that time, from the personal to the political to the governmental, Congress decided that they would change the legislation so it would pick uh, most of the commissioners, the governors of the three Lincoln states, Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky, where he lived, would pick the other members, and the President of the United States got only two uh, choices. I just think that's an interesting part of our history compared to the placid Eisenhower era where he just created a commission and everybody was fine with it. So uh, we have a commission that was um, whose members were appointed by the governors of those uh, three states, by the majority and minority leaders of the House and the Senate, and uh, by two by President Clinton. I was lucky enough to be one of the two, and uh, that's how we formed. So it... It sounds like there's a danger that this is a, a highly politicized body. Would you say that is true? No, it's not. Um, as it turns out, although um, we do have members of Congress serving on the committee, um, Senator Dick Durbin is the co-chair from Illinois, Congressman Ray LaHood, who represents Lincoln's old um, congressional district in Sangamon County, is a member, Sen uh, Congressman Jesse Jackson, Jr., is a member. Um, Senator Jim Bunning of uh, Kentucky is a member. Um, aside, uh, even, you know, notwithstanding their presence, it's very non-political. We have people whose personal and political views cover the full spectrum, but we um, sort of glory in the fact that uh, Lincoln brings people together. Uh, now, even if he didn't during his own lifetime, he brings us together in the common purpose of sharing his story with an even greater um, population of the world, not just this country. So what kind of activities is the, the Bicentennial Commission working on? The the legislative mandates are very specific and, and sort of prosaic, but we of course are fulfilling them. And that is, um, just when we uh, thought we were used to the penny, we're going to be doing new pennies. Um, the, the, the back of a penny will be different for 2009 uh, and uh, however long it takes pennies to fall out of circulation thereafter, uh, new postage stamps, um, cleanup work on the Lincoln Mo Memorial, um, the lettering on uh, the speeches on which um, has sort of deteriorated um, over the years, and one can barely read the inaugural, uh, second inaugural address or the Gettysburg Address now, so we need new stenciling, which we've gotten congressional authorization for. Uh, everything else is things that we've invented uh, and with the help of a uh, an advisory board that I know you serve on and a lot of other Lincoln scholars around the country serve on um we're going to be posting a um, a curriculum program for grade school, middle school and high school students that our education committee is developing. We're hoping to do several conferences, we're co-sponsoring exhibitions that the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian are creating for the bicentennial year. And um, we are um, working to uh, cooperate with, give our seal of approval to, and maybe uh, aid in the production of 
literary projects and scholarly projects that come before us as well. That's just the beginning. Ultimately, there will be a major celebration at the Lincoln Memorial on the anniversary of Lincoln's birth, probably simultaneous celebrations in the Kentucky Log Cabin area and other areas that Lincoln is associated with. Well, it sounds like uh, it brings back some memories in the way of the the National Bicentennial, yes. 1976, where you had a lot of celebration, a lot of hoopla, but not much substance behind it in terms of scholarly production or uh, meaningful projects. It sounds like you're trying to avoid that trap. Well, we want to do both. I mean, uh, we are a, a, a sort of a celebration-oriented and media media uh, focused society, and in recognition. Of which, you know, if you don't have a blowout celebration and a television presence and a web presence, uh, then you really haven't succeeded. But we are being careful to try to uh, have an impact on a scholarly legacy. What's interesting is I don't know if we have to create the scholarly legacy. The good news is that there is such a natural generation of uh, of interest and uh, publishing activity, movie activity right now. Uh, you know, I would say starting at this moment, this fall, when Doris Kearns Goodwin's big Lincoln book comes out through '09, you've got uh, people like Ron White and Alan Gelzo and others, many others, working on new Lincoln books that are all going to be coming out. Uh, William Lee Miller, all working on Lincoln books. I keep thinking of new names, Gabor Borat, all working on new Lincoln books that are be, be coming out in the next few years, enriching scholarship. We are if, also if going. All to... goes well, Harold. I'll say uh, I'm, I'm working on one too, but uh, good. Ho- hopefully it'll be out by then. But go well, ahead. I'm sorry. Don't come out after February 2009. That's like that's taking the marketing uh, equation <laughs> into your own hands in a big way. That's right. <laughs> We're also working with University of Illinois Press, which is trying to create uh, uh, reprints of books of scholarly importance that haven't been generally available, like um, William Herndon's. Um, Lincoln biography in a new annotated and indexed version that Douglas Wilson is editing with Rodney Davis. We're also very interested in a project that he's doing for the 150th anniversary of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And this is a project that's particularly dear to my heart because I wrote about this subject in in 1993. you might remember, maybe nobody else does, but you probably remember that I put out a sort of a controversial edition of the debates. You took that, the contrary views of each, exactly, contrary editions of each one. Exactly. Instead of the Republican newspaper transcripts of Lincoln and the Democratic of Douglas, which both candidates approved and edited a bit before publication in book form in 1860, I took the Democratic of Lincoln and the Republican of Stephen Douglas. And I was criticized for it, and one of the big critics was... Um, Douglas Wilson, who wrote a long essay saying that it's, it was a faulty um, way to do it because even though there were there were cosmetic change to the first edition, to the I'm sorry to the authorized edition, there is uh, a lack of editing uh, in the uh, unauthorized reverse transcripts. Uh, he said the only way to really do it was to publish them side by side. Why didn't Holzer do that? publish the Republican and Democratic transcripts on opposite pages. So I replied and said I would love to do that, but no publisher would undertake to do a thousand-page edition of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So Doug Wilson, of all people, uh, maybe appropriately, poetic justice, is doing just that, and the University of Illinois Press is going to publish an edition of the debates with the, with the 
contradictory or tra- uh, opposite transcripts side by side on even and odd numbered pages. So scholars can always, at their fingertips, have the precise transcriptions and the precise differences before them. Well, it sounds like a very uh, uh, a very useful edition that, that people would want to look at. Uh, in connection with the bicentennial, what can the public do to participate in this? Is there any way to uh, get involved if you're not there? Is efficient? there is a way for the public to get involved, and there will be more as we go forward and make definite plans. But right now, uh, there are, um, the public is welcome to give their own suggestions, and we've gotten quite a few interesting suggestions for our focus uh, from people. Um, um, one thing they can do if they're in Indiana. Uh, Illinois or Kentucky is get in touch with their state bicentennial organizations. Other states are considering doing state bicentennials too. Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, New York, any place that Lincoln visited or had an impact. But the the first thing they should do is go on the Lincoln Bicentennial website, which is lincolnbicentennial.gov. Lincoln Bicentennial is one word. Um, and uh, check in with us, see what we're up to, uh, take a look at our latest news, and send us uh, suggestions that we can throw into the hopper before our next meeting in Santa Claus, Indiana, in September. Yes, a, face, a place that is famous for its postmark, I know. Exactly. Uh, now You've been there, surely. I, I've been past there, yes. Okay. Uh, now, if, if, if Kentucky, Illinois, and Indiana have a, a natural interest in Lincoln, what about places like North Carolina, where I'm sitting, where Lincoln's perhaps not as popular, or even more, I'm thinking of places like, uh, you know, Arizona or Hawaii, where the Lincoln interest would be more tangential. Um, well, that's a very good question. Certainly, there is uh, an understandable local focus from the places of Lincoln's residence where there is pride of place and pride of association, and we can understand the emphasis. Being there as a matter of pride, Illinois' license plates, after all, still say uh, land of Lincoln, and uh, Indiana has institutions named for him all over the state, as you well know. Um, We don't want this to be um, a period only of celebration and puffery, although there is no question that this commission is composed of people who believe strongly and deeply in the Lincoln story and want to perpetuate Lincoln's ideals and uh, especially in this difficult world spread them globally uh, to the point where they had impact on emerging democracies just as we think Lincoln had an impact um, on the emerging democracies that resulted with the fall of the Iron Curtain in uh, 1990. Um, The state of Virginia has just organized a Lincoln group and uh, it will be uh, welcoming speakers who uh, speak to Lincoln's achievements and perhaps question some of his policies. And certainly that kind of give and take and that kind of intellectual discourse is welcomed in, I, in, in any state. And certainly the Carolinas are a place where Lincoln's military orders had a, uh, you know, a negative impact on the white uh, political and social structure and a positive impact on the black political and social structure. So we, we'd like involvement. We'd like challenging involvement if need be. And, uh, again, the website is the national universal place to start. And let me ask one more question while we're on the bicentennial. Uh, as a taxpayer, I want to know, who's paying for all this? Well, um, you have been initially, 
along with all of the other taxpayers. We have established um, cost-free offices in the Library of Congress. We have a very small staff um, who are who work for the United States government, for the Congress, as congressional employees. The um, commissioners, all 11 of us, are unpaid. Um, we uh, work uh, just for the love of the subject. And we are now launching a drive to get private funding uh, to be the uh, a principal source of any of our future endeavors, celebratory, scholarly, etc. Um, happily, we've been able to call upon um, the actor Sam Waterston, for example, um, to do two of our major events leading up to the bicentennial, and that was last uh, February's uh, two Februarys ago. We had a a performance at the Library of Congress, and then. This past February, we repeated that performance at the White House in the East Room uh, at an event spotlighting the bicentennial that was hosted by President and Mrs. Bush. Well, I had the pleasure of attending that event in, in February, uh, the, the performance you and Sam did. It was yeah. exciting. It was very exciting. Uh, it was an impressive thing. And I know he's also performed, with, I believe, at the Cooper Union. Yes. He, and, uh, well, at Cooper Union, he did... Um, and I guess that's that's a whole different subject. Well, I'm, in fact, I'm going to take us out at that point, and we're going to take a little break here on Civil War Talk Radio, but we're going to come back and talk about the Cooper Union, the place where Lincoln made one of his not most famous but perhaps most important speeches. We'll be right. back in a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> <laughs> 